Welcome back to Three Decades of Tragedy, a history of the Thirty Years' War. It's actually been about a year or so, give or take a week, I can't match up exactly, since I started this podcast, so happy anniversary to me, I guess. Thank you guys so much for listening in and continuing to grow this podcast, and it's all thanks to you guys that you guys keep listening, so hats off to you. Let's hope for another year or two, which probably it will be based on just the amount of stuff I have to get through. So you have plenty of content for the upcoming year or two. With that out of the way, let's get started. Last time, we talked about Wallenstein's new army and the growth of the army into what is probably the largest land force in Europe at the time. In this episode, we're going to cover a lot of background war financing and home front type stuff. It's kind of interesting, but somewhat needed to understand the exact political and economic situation that the HRE was in. Wallenstein introduced a method which was called contributions, which was basically commanders of armies and units would put the cost of the war on local communities over central taxes paying for it, which decentralized the system. This had the side effect of letting the government support a war and the enemy would pay more than them, especially if they're using a centralized system. By taking some of the burden off of the central government, that meant the issue of having to supply millions and millions of florins, whatever other currency was out there, they didn't have to supply it anymore, or at least partially. I'll get into that. It wasn't the only method used. More traditional methods were still used, which was asking for loans, getting donations from various traditional nobility, traditional taxes. That all still happened. People trusted Wallenstein with this method because he was also independently wealthy. So he had credit that he could use to to have commanders raise units. And and also to help that he was backed by the emperor, who could back Wallenstein up in emergencies if he needed money. Granted, they're still in a terrible situation, but having the emperor's backing was a major source of credit. Which, for those of you who aren't fully detailed on credit, and it's a very complex thing, credit is you know a combination of actual like money possessed and also how much you can trust that person to pay it back. Anyway, it's off of that trip. Off of that. There was also a system called the muster system, which meant that the town basically had to pay for raising men. And, and the like, usually through an officer who was in the town or area, versus the rulers of the country which who directly paid the officers. A lot of the income of the officer would come from a stipend from the government and from the town. Through these systems, Ferdinand was free to not worry about his financial situation, which was still dire even after all the land that had been taken after Bohemia and the Paladins happened. He was still millions and millions of currency into debt. And as I will talk about later, it was a hole that was very, very difficult to get out of. One issue they ran into was the Imperial Army and the Bavarians hadn't did not have enough money to pay back people who wanted to leave the service. So basically when a mercenary or a soldier would leave service, they would get pay on their way out. Unfortunately they couldn't because troops wouldn't disband until they were paid. Which meant you had a bunch of unruly soldiers who were not exactly happy with their commanders and the government. The problem is, monthly pay just kept stacking the longer they stayed. It was a lose-lose scenario. The amount that was owed to troops leaving was astronomical at the time, and beyond any realistic method of paying it, even if you remove the pay that was owed to men who died. Wallenstein's new method helped slightly on this burden, but it could only do so much with something this large. Christian was also running into the same issues, not necessarily on the people leaving, but his budget and, well, spendings was rapidly increasing, and he was forced to take loans in order to support his war because he paid his officers directly. He got up 3 million currency, florins, whatever the popular currency at the time was, from various people like England, the Dutch, and that sort of thing, their loans, and between 
1625 and 1627, he spent around 8.2 million rix dollars. This rapidly went through his reserve money that he had built up for the war that supposedly would let him run more independently and not have to worry about talking to the Danish parliament. It wasn't parliament, but, you know, the official permission from the estates and the like. And ba- back to Wallenstein. Wallenstein's method were also not exactly well-received or even went with older laws and regulations. Before this, towns were not legally required to put up troops. Usually troops would sit in camps outside of towns and like, you know, go into town for money and stuff, but they weren't put into houses without people's permission, effectively. They tried to maintain some legal basis, some legal... It's not defense is the best word. Effectively, they would send, like, warnings ahead of time, like, hey, we're coming in, you know, get official permission... That sort of stuff. But as the army grew throughout the years, that became impossible to run, especially just because of logistics. I will say that Wallenstein's reforms did help stretch the imperial budget. And I give him credit for that. Like, you get some kudos. He did this because of the system that was still behind the times. And in a long, long war like this, will stretch any government's budget, especially when it's act fighting. The government was so far in debt that effectively it was impossible to get out of as long as the war was active. And even without the war, they couldn't be disbanded right away. And I agree with th- those units wanting to not leave until they get their pay, because I, as a worker, I'd probably be pissed if I go, nope, you don't get like your back pay or whatever. So yeah, if you ever wonder why like in when you go to war, the government's budget like skyrockets. Yeah, war is very, very expensive, especially when you start moving to the territory of modern armies. Another aspect that I want to cover is army and camp logistics. Camp being like army camps. A lack of money as a whole made it harder to feed troops well. Meat became harder to find, so men would get less calories, and meat turned more into gristle and bone in order to give them some sort of protein, although Wallenstein was able to stretch it to make it work. A soldier's diet at the time was generally bread, some form of meat, and alcohol, be it wine, beer, ale, that sort of stuff. That was then supplemented by various fruits and vegetables and other grain, which would generally give them around 3,000 calories a day, which, when you march all day, would, would burn that off. And adding on to that was, there's a group that was referred to as camp followers, who were generally combinations of civilian laborers, families, prostitutes, cooks, although the cooks would intercede with families and the like. Generally around half of the camp followers were women, which many of them were wives of soldiers, and others who were more independent, meaning they weren't connected to a soldier in the army. Women would generally do jobs like cleaning, cooking, foraging, washing clothes, medical stuff, etc. Other followers were teenage boys, who would generally watch over horses and carry weapons around, especially when the army marched. And many of those boys, which would range from probably 12 to 16, 17, would become soldiers in in an army once they became old enough. I mean, it makes logical sense. If you were in an army camp for years, you probably have connections there and you can, you know, immediately join up because you would see training you might do some training yourself. It kind of brings up this whole idea of if you were born in 1618, by the middle of the war, you would be old enough to serve. And by the end, you would be a veteran in your 30s. People's whole lifetime was taken up by war. It's kind of one of those sobering thoughts that I was I was thinking about of how many people just got dragged in, how many kids were born, you know, sixteen seventeen to sixteen twenty, who either fought and or died in the war. Kind of a sad thing, but Thirty Years War wasn't pleasant for anyone. 
Moving off of that sad thought, the ratio of soldiers to camp followers was generally one to one at most, and up to one civilian for every four soldiers at least. So camp followers were not dominating like a camp. It was still mostly soldiers. Soldiers still did their job. They still did things that like camp followers would do, just as camp followers helped them. And for someone like if you had a wife, it was just easier for your wife to travel around with you than to have her stay at home and risk, you know, that's that's someone getting raided and pillaged. Also, morale. Not having your family around is not pleasant on people all the time. But with all that, camp followers did bring a need for supplies and to reduce speeds of an army. The more camp followers you had, the more they had to be fed. So you had to pay for more supplies or search supplies you had. And that would bring a drain on local communities, especially if they're using the contribution method. Many local communities actually would react in fear at hearing an army was going to be staying in the area, knowing that their services would be called upon or their money would start being drained, especially if they're going to stay longer. An army moving through wouldn't be as big a problem as an army that's going to stay there for a while waiting it out. Soldiers also had a tendency to ask, in air quotes, for things from the locals, be it goods, you know, their daughters, that sort of thing. It, soldiers weren't nice to people, even if they were supposedly friendly. So people would not like soldiers marching through, which did not engender trust on either side. An obvious point is obvious, but the more people they have in an army, the slower the army is going to move. For a sake of comparison, the Romans at their height, or the Roman legions at their height at least, were more mobile because troops would carry all their own gear, and they did a lot of their own tasks. Like, hell, they even paved roads and the like, which removed the need for camp followers. Granted, they were professionals, unlike most of the armies of this era, although this era was the time of increasing professionalism, especially among the Dutch, and the Swedes, they will come on later, which I will cover when we get to them. And that's a whole interesting thing. That'll be its own little episode. But yeah, camp followers were a necessary evil, or a necessary part of an army at the time. So, so like them or not, you had to deal with them. Effectively, what contributions was was extortion. It was. It sounded nice, but it was effectively extortion. Wallenstein had convinced several German cities to, to provide resources such as money, men, etc., using the muster system as a threat. Many cities, if they had the money, would rather pay one big lump sum than have troops stay in their cities or mobilize units from them. The lump sum would effectively rescind the rights for officers to do all the muster stuff in the city. And for a city, the a lump sum of a couple hundred thousand uh, florins, or I'm going to say florins just for ease, a couple hundred thousand florins, was a much cheaper price than if the threats were followed up upon. You know, you don't want your city wrecked pillaged, and a lot of the fighting men had already joined the army, so it wasn't exactly something that people wanted. Long term, it wouldn't be good for anyone, but soldiers... They wanted stuff, and soldiers wouldn't hold back when looting and pillaging, even if it's friendly. So this extortion became effectively a regular thing as Wallenstein took over. Territories would sign an agreement with an army, an army commander, to pay troops, especially for those who were in the city, in return for protection warrants that ensuring they would be left alone by other Catholic army, as well as performing, as well as promising good behavior of the troops that stayed behind in the city. They weren't well liked in the city, but supposedly they would be good, although that was unrealistic to suspect that all the time, or even expect it. This gradually extended across northern Germany as the war progressed into 1627 and effectively became a new tax, which was monthly. This method was also used in Habsburg lands, but it was collected in smaller and weekly installments. So probably around the same amount that you would get from the other one, it was just in smaller amounts. Another term used for this would be building, which was yeah, and troops would be put into people's houses and the like in order to give them shelter, which would honestly move people out of their own houses. It was easier to maintain money flow from the cities and settlements when the troops were there, but once troops left, it was harder to guarantee that you get the money. In many cases, people were taken hostage from a village to make sure payments kept coming. For a scale of the payments, uh, in Pomerania, it was around 40,000 
dollars a month when yearly it was ninety thousand for taxes. So way more than what you're paying yearly. Which so it was a heavier burden on taxes, which meant taxes would be less paid because people didn't have the money to pay them. Another issue that would come about was because accountability was an issue. Troops would sometimes demand more money, or or the, or the colonel in charge would demand more money, but records weren't necessarily kept, and sometimes intentionally not kept. So people would make extra money off of that on top of whatever they owed to their commander. Colonels would also get leeway in how they acted, and they used that by like not announcing their arrival or bringing more troops than expected, which would put a heavier toll on the people. And many colonels, even princes and dukes of the HRE, would demand luxuries from the town. And with a couple thousand soldiers in town, it's kind of a, a do you really want to go against me? It was kind of blatantly unfair on everyone because they couldn't do anything because they had effectively a sort of Damocles over their head of, oh, here's a bunch of bloodthirsty soldiers who are bored and you do not want to set off. There's a reason why in the U.S. soldiers cannot legally be put into homes. It's a measure out of this era. I mean, that's, it was more directly based off the British one was going on the British. But the founding fathers were smart enough to know that this was a problem in other eras and would have known about the Thirty Years' War. And like normal stuff, war profiteering was a thing. Mercenaries would overcharge. Colonels would overcharge for their monthly protection, which would go into their pockets. Although, many officers didn't necessarily do it out of pure greed. One of the issues that happened is if you got captured, you had to pay your own ransom. So, an officer would have had to raise his own ransom, and that meant that if he could get more money out of a town, he could build money for his ransom. Not saying all of them, but some of them probably partially based it out of, I need to take money so, I, so if I get in trouble or captured, I can pay myself out. Many officers weren't also business savvy to make tons of money off of that, and in the end, status and power came from land, not how much money you had. So just getting a lot of money wasn't always useful. See, as seeing that merchants were regarded as lesser than nobility, even if merchants were way, way richer than nobility. In fact, late medieval or an early era for this time period, many merchants would have more money than nobility, but they didn't have titles, which was, again, a conflict, which I think I talked about in the beginning, which was merchants wanted the status, so they'd pay a lot, they'd pay extra money for that to people who would give them the status. Or sometimes not, because no, we're not going to give you enough to give anyone that. On the topic of billeting, billeting would also hang heavier over poorer people. Rich landowners would would generally keep troops off their land, which meant the lower classes would take the worst of it. The poor also had trouble keeping up with their pay more more than the rich people, which meant there was more likely to be violence, and even if it wasn't their fault, they were the first people within reach of a soldier, especially one who was angry who wanted his pay. There was the occasional massacre or severe punishments on towns who would revolt or rebel against soldiers living in the town, but that was relatively rare. People were generally smart enough to not pick on the guy with the pike or the musket. Doesn't get angry enough, but people would rather not want their homes burned down. Again, this was a blatantly unfair thing. People in nobility and rich merchants were basically getting away with not having their property be garrisoned, and it was all being put on the lower class of the middle, and I say middle class, but that really wasn't a thing at this time period, or as we know it at least. It was a reality of the time is the unfortunate part. The claim is basically Wallenstein effectively privatized war, although this is an exaggeration. It did still rely upon civil authorities to raise to raise troops, or to, to billet troops and raise money, but it was a very decentralized version of that. And plunder wasn't providing enough money for the war effort, so taxes were still central. Granted, a lot of soldiers took it upon themselves to uh, remove valuable goods from people's houses and would take from them. And sometimes this would be cyclical, like one group would leave, then another group would enter the town. Same thing happened over and over again. And sometimes, in extreme cases, smaller houses were torn down to be used as firewood. Yeah, it's it sucked to be a local. The troops would also ignore local customs, not caring one way or the other, or sometimes intentionally being assholes. 
criminals, which wasn't helped by corruption among officers who would, like I said before, falsify records to pocket some of the money that came into them. And at their best, local authorities, like who did bill it and the like, were decent people who were just poorly supported and paid, and they were just trying to control and keep track of thousands of men and thousands in pay. I would generally, looking looking at the situation, probably put the issues of how bad the, you know, corruption versus just incompetence slash overwhelming, some in the middle. It was somewhere between corruption and overworked. There was clearly amount of actually corrupt officers, but in many cases it was just the town was not prepared to keep hundreds or thousands of people in them. This also created a societal problem because some people would be exempted from this, see the rich people and nobility, because they would effectively pay to not have people billeted there. And then everyone would be like, hey, why are you not getting, you know, people there? And that would create issues because everyone else would take the burden that that person wasn't taking. It also changed many friendly attitudes in, in towns, which made local leaders more ruthless about getting money, especially because the army with guns there was always willing to step in in case they weren't getting their money. The war changed what might be a friendlier attitude or less pushy into way more pushy and way more give us the money or or whatever punishment would happen. In the short term, it worked for the army. It raised money and provided quarters, but this created stability issues and mistrust and just issues with taxes. In the long term, it really didn't help. Not that it like created like, wide-scale revolts, but long-term societal stuff was an issue. This war was ruinous on more than just money. Again, socially, it just distanced people. It made people more distrustful. And this will continue into the future, especially as more foreign people come into the HRE and fight. And adding on to this, many of these villages had already been like burned down, raided, or pillaged in previous years already. So these people were already not in good shape. And now you're kind of trying to put soldiers on them. The last last thing I want to talk about today is the fact that despite Wallentine's claims that this new method could keep the army afloat for years and years, he still relied on Habsburg taxes to provide a basis for it. The larger army, which went to around 100,000, was unsustainable at the current tax rate. For example, every year he receives around 1.2 million florins from 1625 to 1630, which adds to his war chest, which included money from the system I previously mentioned which was a large amount of money, but he also was spending a lot of it. Even with the reduction on it, it was still being taxed, not like literally as being taxed, but like a lot of it was being spent to maintain the army. That eventually resorted, resulted in the Catholic home front being forced to rely on credit versus actual money as time went on, meaning people couldn't pay or they couldn't pay enough or they just could not pay at all. This credit system that was building was incredibly unstable. The emperor could not pay back the owed money, unlike the Dutch loan system, which tried to operate under reasonable terms of how much could you pay back within a certain, you know, five, ten years. It wasn't helped by the army bloating to 100,000, which, again, it was the largest army in Europe at the time. The only thing really keeping this afloat was the personal loyalty to the emperor and the land he had given, which I covered earlier in this season. Land was many times given to people to cover debt, which reduced the problem. Some of it was immediate, other other of it, if it was as important, was put on a wedding list, as they still kept paying what they were preparing for the war. Without the current emperor and the trust they had in him, the system would have collapsed, so Wallenstein was lucky to have the backing of him. The unfortunate thing of this system and how it was going was it was a necessary evil. I will agree, this system is not the best thought out, but it did help the war effort against the Danish 
so it did its job. Also, I should highlight that they lack the bureaucracy that we have now, although whether you consider that good or bad is your opinion, but they lack the bureaucracy to run a war of this scale, seeing as this army size was new in Europe at the time. Uh, the Romans had that size, but it had been centuries since an army of 100,000 had been raised, even if it wasn't one big unified one. So the war economy was rough on everyone, and I don't necessarily cover it all like in detail like this, but taxes and stuff of this would hit rough on everyone. No one really won the war in that term. I want to thank you for listening in, and I hope you enjoyed the podcast. I'm sorry if this episode was mostly systematic stuff, but I felt it was important to cover so you have a, a background of just the sheer cost of this war on the Atrian and other factions. Next week, we get back into the narrative and back into the war as the Danish and HRE go back to fighting, or go to fighting. Social media links will be in the description, or on the links themselves, if you go to the, if you go through those. You can email me at 3DECOT at gmail.com. Reminder that I have a Patreon if you wish to support me, and I'll see you guys next time.